Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Glad that you're here as we continue to study the book of Zechariah. A new day for God's people is the title of our Bible study, and we're glad that you made it. And if you can't make it any of the Wednesdays, well, they're online, and we also have those joining us online tonight. We're happy to have you wherever you are and however you may be joining us in the study of God's Word this evening. Tonight, we will be looking at the end of uh, vision number three and looking at vision number four of the eight visions of Zechariah. So it's good to see you tonight. Let's pray together, and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Your word is powerful. It is truth. Every single word of it, Lord, uh, is, is God-breathed, and we know that. We acknowledge that because of that, we give it our full attention. And so, Father, I pray that when, as we study your word together every Wednesday night here, but especially tonight, that your presence would be with us, your Holy Spirit would teach us what you have prophesied, prophesied through, through Zechariah to God's people first, but also to us. Thank you for everyone who's joining us online, for everybody who's here live. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit again would be filling this place and prevalent tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 2, starting in verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 5 tonight. And so, of course, we begin with our quiz. Are you ready for the pop quiz? I don't want you, I don't know online, but there's groans here live, so... Seven questions tonight as we have, uh, normally have. See how many of these that you can get correct. Number one, what does the name, don't answer out loud, just answer either in your mind or writing it down. What does the name Zechariah mean? We've asked this every week, so hopefully by now you'll be getting it. What does the name Zechariah mean? Second of all, second question, number two, the two themes of the book. The book is about two things. And we've asked this question each, each week as well. The two themes of the book. Question number three, what are the colors of the horses in vision number one? Three colors of the horses in the vision number one. Number four, where were the horses standing in vision number one? Standing in a certain location according to what Zechariah saw. Question number five from last Wednesday night, vision number two, how many horns and craftsmen were in vision number two? Now, don't look at the Bible. That's not fair on a, on a Bible quiz. How many horns and craftsmen were in vision number two? Question number six in vision number three, what was the man holding in his hand? Man, it was an angel, looked like a man. Holding something in his hand, what was it? And vision, I mean, vision, question number seven, what was the young man told to do in vision number three? The young man was told to do something in vision number three. All right, let's look at the answers and see how you did tonight. What does the name Zechariah mean? Yahweh remembers. Everybody got that. That's good. That's good. Number two, the two themes of the book. Keep rebuilding the temple and your best days are ahead of you. The glory of Israel, the glory of Jerusalem is the best days are ahead of you. Question number three, the colors of the horses. Vision one. Red, white, and sorrel. There you go. Very good. Question number four. 
Where was the horse standing in vision number one? In the glen, the bottom, the hollow. Okay, all right, very good. Question number five, how many horns and craftsmen were in vision, four, or vision two? Four, exactly right. Four horns, four craftsmen that crashed the horns, that, that uh, shattered the horns. Question number six in vision three, what was the man holding in his hand? Measuring line or a tape measure. He was going to measure Jerusalem. And question number seven, what was the young man told to do in vision three? To run. Run. Well, uh, well, actually, he was to measure Jerusalem, too. So I'll accept either answer there. But I was looking for run. Remember the word na'ar that's used uh, four times in the Old Testament every time the young man is running in all four times that it's used. So the young man was told to run and then measure Jerusalem. How many got all seven of them? Oh, we got some. All right. Very six out of seven? Quite a few. Five out of seven? Even more. Some of you raised your hand on both. I guess if you got five, you did get seven. Okay. Or seven, you got five. So, all right. Very good. Well, whenever we take these quizzes, it kind of allows us to pay more attention to details and know God's Word better whenever we take a, a quiz on it. Well, we're to chapter 2, verse 6 tonight, halfway through vision number 3. Just by way of recapping quickly, a remnant of God's people returned from captivity in Babylon, although Persia is in control now, returned to the homeland. 50,000 of them got to return or did return. The rest of them could, they just didn't. But a great majority, hundreds of thousands of Jews, remained in Babylon because it was just easier if you went back to Israel, to the homeland. You had to rebuild. Uh, it, it, was, it was hard. Life is much more comfortable in Babylon. So rather than going back to the homeland, most of them, Israelites, stayed in Babylon. But only 50,000 of a remnant went back to Israel to the homeland. When they got back, the very first thing they did was they reestablished the foundations of the temple because it was lying in ruins. Then they rebuilt the altar so they could sacrifice their, for their sins and have their sins forgiven. But after they did those two things, rebuild the altar and, and, and rebuild the foundations of the temple, they stopped working because they got discouraged. It's hard. So they stopped rebuilding the city, stopped rebuilding the temple, and just lived life and didn't rebuild anymore. Well, Zechariah, this happened for 18 years. Zechariah, after 18 years, called to be a prophet of God to prophesy to them. And God gave him eight visions to tell to these 50,000 people and those in Babylon as well. Vision number one, a vision of horsemen. And that was designed to comfort those 50,000 who had returned. God wanted to encourage them. That was vision number one. Vision number two we looked at last week. Four horns and four craftsmen. And that was God saying that the nations who punished Israel would be punished. Remember that? There were four nations that would uh, punish or did punish or would punish Israel. And God was going to punish those who punished his people. And then last week, vision number three, we looked at the first half of it. A man with a measuring line or a tape measure in his hand told to run and measure Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem wouldn't be hard to measure because there wasn't much there. They hadn't rebuilt it yet. 
said, run and measure Jerusalem because it's going to be large. It's going to be expansive. It's going to be a large metropolis again. Now, that didn't happen in Zechariah's day, but it's happened today. And it's been prophecy fulfilled. You go to Jerusalem today. It's large. It's everything that was measured in vision number three. So it has been fulfilled today. So those are the prophecies, the first two and a half visions. So now let's go to vision three, the second half of it. Verses 6 through 13. Verse 6, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Let me stop there for a moment. Let's look at that verse. Now, the second half of vision 3 draws on some practical implications from visions two and three. It's a section of poetry in the midst of prose. So Zechariah was a spokesman for God, first to the Jews who'd returned, but also to the Jews still in Babylon who did not return. And the message he gives here is Jerusalem will once again be glorious and a large metropolis and the glory of God will be settled in Jerusalem. Now, you may say, okay, so what? Well, it was a big deal to the Jews, and it still is a big deal to the Jews. You go to Jerusalem today, as many of you have, anytime you're in the city, there's a special um, reverence that all Jews have for Jerusalem. Even our tour guide, Yuval Shemesh, who was born and raised there, lives in a suburb outside of Moda'in, and he told us, every time I leave the suburb and drive into Jerusalem, even to this day, there's something that, that inside of me that just jumps. They love Jerusalem because it was God's city. In this vision, it wasn't enough for God just to say, Jerusalem is going to be restored and, and, and glorious and move on. As Dr. Lopal used to say, the future greatness of Zion was too important of a subject to just move past quickly. Aspects of it needed to be unfolded. So he continued in the vision, telling just how glorious Jerusalem is going to be. But look what he said to do in verse 6. Up, up. Why did he say that twice? Anytime you see something repeated in Scripture, if it's said back to back, whether it's verily, verily, or whatever it is, it's always there for emphasis. Old Testament, New Testament, both. So it's almost like he's screaming at them, get up, up, up. Who's he talking to? Flee from the land of the north. Who's in the land of the north? The Israelites in Babylon who didn't come back. Remember, hundreds of thousands of them stayed there. And so now he's not talking to the 50,000 that came back. He's talking to those hundreds of thousands who didn't. And he's telling them, get up, get out of your comfort zone, get out of there and head back to this land. You didn't come back. Now it's time to come back because I'm about to bring judgment upon Babylon, the land you're living in. I'm going to bring judgment upon it. You're not going to want to be there when I do. I'm trying to spare you, I'm trying to warn you, get up. And get back. Now, sadly, most of the Jews were comfortable in Babylon, refused to 
endure the challenge of rebuilding in the land of Israel, and they just got lazy. And just to be honest, some believers do the same today, don't they? You lazy? God's telling them, up, up, get up and get back busy again, doing what I called you to do in the Lord's work. We have many members that are kind of in Babylon tonight. Uh, it's comfortable, and life's comfortable, and don't really want to serve the Lord as they should. So it's really a good message for us. But where were they besides Babylon? Notice he says, verse, end of verse 6, For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens. Was Babylon the only place Jews were other than, than Israel? No. Where would the rest of them be? Well, if you go back before Judah was taken to Babylon, do you remember the northern part of Israel? They were invaded by Assyria. So some of those are still in Assyria. Where is Assyria? North. So whenever he says, those of you in the north come back, he's not talking just about Babylon. He's talking about the northern kingdom that had been in Assyria. And they're still there. But why did he say, I spread you to the four winds, which meant all over the globe, when they're only in the north? Well, some of them, when the attacks in Israel happened, took their families and escaped before they could be captured. And they went to various countries. Some went to Egypt. Jeremiah 43, 7 talks about it. Some took their families and slipped out and went over to Moab. Jeremiah 40, verses 11 and 12 talk about it. Some of them escaped and went over to Ammon. Some escaped and went over to Edom. By the way, Edom and Moab and Ammon, what country is that today? Jordan, absolutely. So they escaped and went over there. So Israelites are all over. Yes, most of them are in Babylon. Yes, 50,000 returned to Israel, but you've got some in Assyria, you've got some in Egypt, you've got some in Jordan, you've got some in Moab and Ammon and Edom. You've got them scattered out. Did they obey God and come back? No. He wanted them to, but they didn't. When did they all come back? 1948. Remember when Israel became a nation again? Many of the nations, they came back from all over the world to Israel. And they're still coming, by the way. Every time we go, there are more people groups. In fact, there's a large influx from Ethiopia. Jews from Ethiopia that are coming back right now. More of them this year than the last time we were there last year. From Ethiopia. But what did one of the prophets say? They would come out of the land of Cush and Ethiopia and return to the homeland. Prophecy is being fulfilled now in Israel. So you're looking at this. God's encouraged them to all come back. That's why 1948 is so important in the lives of the Jews. Today they talk, they talk about it all the time. Because that's when they all started to come back from the original command all the way back in the Old Testament. Up. Flee the Lord, the north. I scattered you over the four winds. Come back to this homeland. And eventually they did. Verse 7. Up, 
Escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Let's stop there for a moment. That's an interesting phrase. Let's talk a little bit about it. Now, in verse 8, the Jews, still in Babylon, needed to flee back to the homeland because God was going to judge Babylon. Why? Because Babylon touched the apple of God's eye. Who was the apple of God's eye? Israel. Why the phrase, the apple of God's eye? Well, Today, whenever we talk about the apple of your eye, it's a term of endearment, isn't it? If it's a grandchild or a child or a spouse and you say, boy, they're just the apple of my eye. That's a phrase that means they mean a lot to you. The phrase goes all the way back to the Bible. Five times it's used in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32.10, Proverbs 7.2, Lamentations 2.8, Psalm 17.8, and here, Zechariah chapter 3 verse uh, 2 I'm not, not 3 2 but 2 8 and so the the eye the apple of your eye is used to describe a precious sensitive easily injured person part of the body that demands protection it's your eye it's easily injured uh it's um it's you have to protect your eyes We've heard the eye is the gateway to the soul, the pupil, the most sensitive part of the body. Spurgeon said, quote, God esteemed Israel as humans value their eyesight, careful to protect it from injury, the most tender part of the most tender organ. So when you touch Israel, you're touching a sensitive part of God. Is that still true today? Yes. There are some who believe, some theologians who believe that it's not talking about Israel today, that they believe in what's called replacement theology. What that means is Israel has been replaced with Christ, by Christians. So every time you see the nation Israel, just substitute the word Christian in there, and he's talking about us today, not, not the country of Israel. Well, most scholars don't believe in replacement theology. That there's, yes, we as believers in Jesus we are God's children equal with the Jews, but Romans makes it clear somehow, somehow, God's going to graft Jews back in again. Now, they have to come through Jesus, obviously. Graft Jews back in for his purpose again. So, I don't think you can just say, well, replacement theology is not talking about Israel today. Still, I believe today, if you touch the nation of Israel, you're touching the apple of God's eye. And he talked about that. Not just the most sensitive part, but here's another thing it could mean. Apple of the eye, uh, you know, somebody dear to you, but it could mean something different. The Hebrew wording that's used there is very interesting. It, little, it liter literally means the little man of the eye, not the apple fruit that we know it, little man. 
The most literal rendering in the Hebrew language, little man of the eye. What's he, what's he talking about, the little man of the eye? It was a reference to the reflection as you're, look, as you're talking to somebody else and you're looking them in the eye and you can see your own reflection, just a little, just a tiny person of you in their eye. You say, I've never looked anybody in the eye that closely before. But if you look closely into somebody else's eye as you're talking to them, you can see your reflection just a little. So there are Bible scholars that believe the most literal sense of this, little man of the eye, means not necessarily that Israel just, just means so much to God, but that Israel is a reflection of God. Now, as we go through the rest of this passage, that interpretation kind of makes more sense. Because in the rest of our passage we're going to see tonight... He's talking about Israel being a representative of God to the nations. When they see you, they should see God as a reflection. So the context kind of makes more sense. The little man of the eye, that whenever they look at you, they should see a reflection of God. And that's, that's good for us believers as well, isn't it? So, interesting phrase in verse 8. Let's go to verse 9. Behold, I will shake out my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Now, hold on a second. Who's talking? Let me read it again. Behold, I will shake my hand over the nations, and they shall become plunder for those who serve you. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Zechariah, right? No. He never did this. He never went to the nations and shook his hand out over them, and everybody knew that God had sent him. That never happened. It appears like he's talking about Jesus, Messiah. That when the Messiah comes, it starts what one of many times throughout the rest of this book, where the Messiah, the Messianic prophecy comes in place. Jesus, that happened and will happen during the millennial time. He will stretch out his hand over the nations, Revelation says, and shake them and they will know that God has sent him. It's exactly spoken of Jesus. In Revelation. So it sounds like Zechariah is getting his vision, but it's fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. Go to verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Now, stop for a moment. The 50,000 that had returned. What was their attitude and spirit? They were down. They were discouraged. Life was hard. Came back from Babylon. Yes, they got to go back to Israel. Got there. Had a drought. Crops didn't make. They're hungry. Land's in rubble. They got to rebuild it. Got to rebuild the temple. They're just discouraged. And in the midst of it, God told Zechariah to tell them, Sing and rejoice. Daughter of Zion, I am dwelling in your midst. God did not expect his people to sit around gloomy at their plight. 
He expected them to sing and rejoice. And it's the same with us, folks. You may have a lot of things going on that's bad in your life. You may have a lot of things that's causing you to be depressed or gloomy or discouraged. Sing and rejoice because you've got eternity settled. And you've got someone to walk through life with you who will dwell in your midst with you. So sing and rejoice, daughter of Zion. Don't walk around gloomy. God's people should be excited because God would be with his people in a unique and a powerful way. And then he said, many nations will turn to the Lord because of you. Israel should have been excited about that. God's going to use Israel to bring nations to the Lord. But you know what? They didn't like it. And they still don't like it. They feel like there's something special about them. They don't want the nations coming to the Lord. They never got the part they were to be a priest to the nations. They never got it. And they still don't. We were on a flight to, to this past time to, to Israel when we went in November and just a ton of Orthodox Jews on there on the flight with us. We left out of New Jersey and that's the number one location for Jews in the U.S. is New Jersey. So there's Orthodox Jews and 50 of us on the flight basically. And they treated us with a disdain. They didn't want us there. They're, they're, we're not God's people, they are. And they still had this attitude. I don't want the nations to come to God. We're unique. We're special. We're God's chosen people. They never got that. Although God said, I'm going to use you to bring nations to me. Verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. If you're a believer in Jesus, no matter your nationality, you're a child of God. And the Jews don't like that. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Verse 12. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. You notice that word holy land in verse 12? The only time in all the Bible... The word, the phrase holy land is used. We call Israel the holy land now. Only time it's used right here. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land. And the word holy there just means sacred, not common, not ordinary, because God's presence is there. Then verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The word be silent there is the word literally means shh quiet. God has raised up off of his throne. He's about to act and move and that should cause all flesh to be quiet because he's holy. End of vision number three. Let's go to vision number four. We'll close. Chapter three verses. We'll look at the first half of the vision verses one through five. Go letter B on your outline. Fourth vision. Joshua the high priest. This is interesting vision. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. All right, let's stop there. I got questions already. The high priest, as you know, represented God's people to God 
once a year for their sins. That was what the high priest did in Israel. And so Israel would be restored as a high priestly nation. It's where he's eventually going to get to. We'll see that next week. The first three visions dealt primarily with the material and physical side of Israel, like where you are in the land, or you in Babylon. But visions uh, four through eight deal with the spiritual life or the moral influence of Israel, not just physically where they are, but their moral influence. Vision number four has two parts, the symbolism in verses one through five, and then the accompanying promises in verses six through 10. Tonight, we'll look at one through five, and then next week, six through 10. The angel showed Zechariah in his vision, Joshua, who was Israel's current high priest. Now remember, there are only 50,000 of them. All they've done is rebuild the altar. But somebody had to be the go-to to God for them, right? So they elected a high priest, Joshua. Not Joshua the prophet. Another name, Joshua. Joshua is a very common name in the Old Testament. It literally meant Jesus or, or Yeshua. So there was a man named Joshua who was the high priest. And so Zechariah saw a vision of Joshua the high priest. And standing right beside him was Satan. Satan hated the entire scene. That God's people would come back and have their sins forgiven. He hates it when God's people come into God's presence to honor the Lord. So he saw a vision of Satan. You say, now wait a minute. Was Satan already in the Old Testament by the name Satan? Well, it's the word Satan in Hebrew, which means accuser. Sometimes used with a definite article. Definite article means the accuser. You're thinking about a person, right? If it just says accuser, maybe it's just somebody accusing, not really Satan. But here are the definite articles used. So it is the person. It is Satan himself standing there. Satan's name literally means accuser. You remember in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 10, it says that Satan was accusing the, the brethren, the Christians, night and day before God. Job 1 and 2 talks about the same thing. So here is J Satan acting as a prosecuting attorney, prosecuting Joshua the high priest. Revelation, he is standing before God accusing you and me night and day. Accusing us of what? All of our sins. But Jesus has covered those under the blood. So his accusation is pointless. But to think, night and day, still, even though he knows our sins are covered under the blood, still he accuses us before God. But you know who else he stands before? He stands before you. And he puts things in your mind. Who do you think you are trying to serve the Lord? Well, look at all the things in your life. Look at all those sins. Look at, if, any, if everybody knew what you really thought in your, in your thought life, they wouldn't be nearly as impressed with you. You're such a hypocrite. Constant accusations in our minds by the enemy. And here he is standing there. Notice where he's standing. At his right hand. Is that significant? Yes. Because the right hand in Scripture was the power side. That was the authority side. Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. 
That's the authority. That's the power side. So Satan trying to usurp power away from Joshua by standing at his right hand. But the right side was also in a Jewish court of law where the accused, uh, where the prosecuting attorney would stand to bring the accusations. So in this vision, he sees the high priest trying to do his job and Satan at his right hand accusing him constantly, trying to discredit everything he does. Folks, Satan is our great adversary. He's against you. But as one theologian said, the only thing worse than having Satan as your adversary is having him as your friend. So evidently, this took place in the temple setting this vision did. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Stop there. So God speaks to Satan who's accusing the high priest. And he says, I rebuke you. Get out of here. Is not my people a brand plucked from the fire? What's a brand plucked from the fire? A, a brand was a burnt, charred piece of wood smoldering in the ashes. And if, if, you, if you see one like that, a wood that's half burned, half charred, if you don't get it out of there, it's going to be consumed and become ashes itself. So God is referring to his people. Burnt and charred in Babylon, but I went in and I rescued you and I brought you back to save you as the burnt, charred remains. But yes, you're burnt. Yes, you're smoldering. But I've kept you and I've redeemed you. I've rescued you from what else would happen. If not plucked out of the fire and rescued, that have been consumed. And so he tells Satan this remnant here, they are charred and burned, and man, they've been through it. But I rescue them, and what's left is going to be used for my glory. Some of you may know this, and some of you may not. John Wesley, uh, when he was six years old, was trapped in a burning house. Neighbor, a neighbor who lived next door, climbed through a window got little John Wesley on his shoulders and got him out and rescued him. Otherwise, he'd have been burned. And, and a picture of this scene was drawn and given to John Wesley. And he always saw this passage and always saw himself in this as God rescuing him to use him later in his life. And God did. And this picture he kept with, of, of, a, of a little boy being rescued from a burning house and Zechariah 3.2 underneath it. And he kept it until the day he died. It meant a lot to him because he saw himself as the, as the smoldering brand rescued that God was going to use and had our passage, Zechariah 3, 2, underneath it. Dr. Meyer says God always has made much through the years out of the brands, the fragments, and the castaways. And he's accomplished a lot with those. And he has. Some of you here, you may see yourself as someone that, man, you had a rough go, charred and smoldering and burning, but God has rescued you and he'll do much with you because God has often done much with those brands 
and the fragments and the castaways. Go to verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. What on earth? The high priest, spotless, pure. Their garments, they, they were spotless. But the word that's used in verse 3 for filthy is the most vile, vulgar, excrement-filled word in Hebrew. So in this vision, Zechariah saw the high priest trying to minister before the altar of the Lord and his holy vestiture, the, the garments, filled with manure, excrement. And Satan standing beside him, accusing him. I can just hear Satan. Must have been pointing to those filthy garments with manure all over him, saying, who is this standing before you of your people? And it was a picture. Israel, they're going to be a priest to the nations. But they're dirty. They're sinful. They have excrement upon them. And you can't minister like that. So verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So here's the scene. Zechariah, on the night he saw all eight visions, gets to vision number four, and he sees Joshua. He recognized him as the high priest. Standing there, ministering before the Lord, Satan right beside him. He's got garments on that are filthy, that have manure on them. And Satan's standing there pointing to the garments saying, who do you think you are? And an angel comes up and says, get those filthy clothes off of him. And put on the pure garments, symbolizing the sinfulness of Israel, but how they would be forgiven. God would remove Joshua's filthy garments and replace them with festal, stately robes. The apparel of royalty and wealth, a symbol of God's righteousness. And just as the robes were replaced on Joshua and all the sinfulness gone and now purity comes, the same would happen to God's people. God said, I will forgive your sins, that excrement-filled life you're living, and I'm going to bring my purity and my holiness into it. And friends, if not just Joshua and not just Israel, you go to us in the New Testament. That's our story. We lived a life of sin, of filth, of the most vile word you can think of for filth. And God, through Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus, has taken those old garments off. And put on the pure garments of holiness. And in Christ, we are clothed in God's righteousness. Now, the idea of being clothed in God's righteousness runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. 
Genesis 3.17, Genesis 3.21, old clothes were taken off, sinful clothes taken off, and God's righteousness put on all the way through to Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. Old garments are taken off and new righteous clothes put on. It's the same thing that's happened to us. God's righteousness has replaced our sinfulness in Christ. And that's what he saw in the vision. But one more part of the vision, then we'll close. Verse 5. Zechariah. And I said, Zechariah said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. You remember last week, real quickly, when it says an angel of the Lord it could be any angel God created. When it says the angel of the Lord, many times who it is, you remember? Jesus. That's exactly right. Old Testament theophany of the New Testament Christ. Jesus was standing by watching in the dream. So why would Zechariah say that? I mean, why, why wouldn't he just be content with with his garments changing, and now they're clean. But Zechariah says, no, no, no. And he says, no, no, wait, wait, hold on. Not just his garments, that turban around his head. Take that old turban off and put a new one on. And they did. God's purpose accomplished by what a man commanded. But why would he say that? What's the significance of a turban? Well, if you remember Exodus 28, 36 and Exodus 39, 30, the high priest was to wear pure garments and a clean turban. And on the turban is written the words, holy to the Lord. He is to be holy and separate. And so Zechariah sees the clothes clean and pure, but he still sees the dirty turban that says, holy to the Lord, no, no excrement filled, anything on the name of the Lord. Get that turban off of him and put a clean one on. And the angel did. Pure holiness from top to bottom in the Lord. That's what Israel was to become. That's why the vision. We'll pick up next week with the second half of this vision which gets even more interesting for starting in verse 6. If you have any questions or comments, please see me afterwards. Email me. I'm always happy to respond, and we'll close and wrap up our study tonight. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you tonight that in this vision, these visions of Zechariah, we see, we see who you are and how you dealt with Israel. But God, we also see ourselves and how you've dealt with us. And Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you, through the blood of Christ, blood shed on the cross, that you have taken our old stain-filled lives and sinful lives and replaced it with the righteousness of God. We're blessed tonight, God. We know that, and we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.